Then today is Sunday. It is January 25th. It is uh, 2009. Contrary to uh, little publicized reports, I'm not 57 Tuesday. Uh, I will be 34. I would like to claim 57 and that I look very good for my age. Oh, we do have potluck next Sunday? Yes, we have potluck next Sunday. And uh, Abel tells me he will out-eat all of you. And that Oneida will fix something that will rival the coriander seed that the Israelites uh, gathered. And said, what is it? Manna. So, uh, okay. Our, uh, yeah, there's a list traveling amongst you now. There's no such word as that, but I still like to say it. Um, our message today is called The Cross in the Curtain. I told you that I was going to preach to you today about the Pirakot Avot, the ethics of our fathers. And I lied. Not going to do it. Uh, as I was sitting around a fire uh, with some folks in the church the other night, I heard a song. I didn't particularly just love the song, but a lyric in the song jumped out at me, and it's all I've been able to think about ever since. And so that's what we're going to preach about. Isn't it good that we don't have to get our messages approved in Rome or Springfield, Missouri or anywhere else? <laughs> okay, so as I was writing a description, because I have to do that for the internet, here, here's what I wrote, and we'll see how true it is when we're done. It says, one German author from the early 20th century said of Jesus, he is the arch median point where the world can be shifted from its axis. He and none other holds this title. No point in history more clearly illustrates this fact than the last moments on the cross. The earth shook and it was reported by secular historians as far away as Rome. But more importantly, the very heavens were shaken and the results literally changed the world. That's our topic this morning. The cross in the curtain. And I think that once we begin to dig into this, you'll agree with me, it was a monumental event in history. But before we get there, I wanted to share with you a little bit of Greek history. Uh, history that we're more familiar with that is not contained necessarily in the pages of the Bible. I put a timeline on our church wall so that you could see when you were reading something like uh, the words of Solomon, what was going on in history during the time period of Solomon. While Solomon lived, uh, things were being written. Like uh, Homer wrote the Iliad and the Odyssey during that time period. While Moses was writing, the cities of Troy and Athens and Thebes were all being founded. Uh, you can see on this timeline his story within history. Well, as we examine history, we find out that like the rest of creation, it magnifies God. It glorifies Him. It speaks of our common need. Aristotle said that a tragedy, he, he's defining a Greek literary work called a tra tragedy, is characterized by seriousness and dignity, and it involves a great person who experiences a reversal of fortune. He went on to say that this brings its audience to a place of pity and fear, and it results in something that he called catharsis, which means an emotional healing. Now, I don't know whether I agree with Aristotle or not, but I do know this. All of the most famous Greek works of literature fall into this category. They're tragedies. They all involve some hero who is set out to do amazing things and yet is brought down by an unforeseeable character flaw. 
And in the end, his life is sad. That's why they call it a tragedy. Aristotle pointed out that there's something about the audience that identifies with this. It causes us to fear that it could happen to us, pity that it happened to someone else. And he said it brought about healing. Now, I don't find that to be the case. But I do know something. Throughout history, we have had the same continual circular pattern. Have y'all heard the quote that those that don't know history are condemned to repeat it? I found that that's true even of those that do know history. Isn't that strange? Yes. The first man died. What's every man been doing since? <laughs> Dying. The fact that you know that history does not change that reality, does it? I was reading something that Herodotus wrote and it was about Xerxes. Now, some of you uh, have seen in the movie 300. Now, I know not all of you would watch something like that, but you may have heard reports, or maybe you watched the Discovery Channel version of The Last Stand of the Spartans. They were facing the Persian Empire, and the king was Xerxes, and he was considered to be a god. Xerxes had a vision that he would unite eastern peoples and western peoples. That seas would no longer be barriers because he had the largest army the world had ever seen by sea and by land. And he had massed all this before him and put himself on a golden throne that was carried on the backs of people like a chariot. It's amazing that our God actually travels on a throne and he's enthroned upon praise. And heavenly creatures move to and fro under the throne and elders above it. Ezekiel saw it and John saw it. And something in mankind always wants to lift someone to that place. See, it's not just that Xerxes was an egomaniac. I mean, that's a problem. But there's another problem. There's something innate to man that says something's wrong with the world. It's always been wrong. And if we could invest enough power in one person, if we could accumulate enough resources, enough things in this one form of government, this one monarch, this one group of people, perhaps they could bring about change. Well, Xerxes was at Hellenspont, sitting on his golden throne, looking out over an ocean with all of the ships, the largest army the world had ever amassed. And Herodotus wrote that he began to cry. This God King was reduced to tears. Now nobody knows why he cried, but Herodotus <coughs> began to theorize that it's because he realized, despite those that claimed he had divine attributes, despite all of the pomp and pageantry to which he had risen, all of the kingdoms of the world that were under his control, he couldn't do anything about the fact that half of his army would die the next day in battle. And one day he himself would die. This brings on something that is common to all mankind. Guilt. No matter who you are, at some point in your life, outside of Christ, there is something that happens that you regret. It's a lie when people say, I've lived my life and I have no regrets. That's not honest. That's a way of just saying, uh, don't dig any deeper, don't look any closer. Any human being that has ever really lived has regrets. In Christ, we find out what to do with them, but our history before the cross, before that strategic turning point, is full of heroes that were listed to godlike status, but were unable to either change the world or bring about a change in man's fundamental struggle with guilt. How many of you know who Constantius Chlorus is? Of all the Romans, this is not one that you would even know his name. No hands flew up immediately. 
But you know who Constantine the Great is, don't you? Right? Constantine the Great goes down in history, a false history, but people say he was a Christian. I personally don't believe that at all. His daddy, his daddy took upon himself the title Eternal Restorer of Light, Mithras Incarnate. Now, the reason that Rome did this is because Rome was facing a dark hour. They were surrounded on every side by barbarian hordes, and they needed a military leader. It happened to be at a time of the year when most of the northern parts of Europe get dark in December. And the god that they worship, Mithras, was supposed to appear in the spring. So during the month of December, they worship Mithras as incarnate in a man. You see syncretism at work here? It's amazing that uh, the Roman calendar chose December to worship an incarnate man. It's something that had always gone on. But let me ask you, none of you even knew his name. So was he really the restorer of eternal life? You could do this over and over and over with as many popular figures as you can name, whether it's Nebuchadnezzar, God over all of the world, the head of gold, the chief monarch, and yet he finds himself in a field for seven years not even knowing his name. Such is the fate of man. This is what in literature is called the mythology of fate. Everywhere you look, man's fate is the same. Something has to change. So men begin building empires around characters. They begin looking for new forms of government. They begin investing more and more power into people. This was the idea, this was the venue in which Jesus was born. Jesus was not born into a vacuum, was not born in a time in history where men were not suffering the perils of fate and empire. In fact, if you turn to Luke 2, which I invite you to do now, Luke tells us exactly what Jesus was born into. While I wait for the rest of you to get there, an author that I read recently said, this is the affliction of history, that man can know guilt, but not purity. That he can kill, but not make alive. This means that these tales of Xerxes, of Nebuchadnezzar, of the particular Caesars, whether it be Vespasian or whoever it may be, they cease to be just pitiful tales in distant times and places. They stop being stories just about somebody in a galaxy a long time ago in a far, far away place. And something in us identifies with them because they become a parable of all human history. Someone in whom you had placed your hopes, but in the end, your hopes failed. This is the scenario from Adam all the way to Jesus, which is more than 4,000 years of history. Mankind's hopes dashed to the ground. Something's wrong with the world, but if we could just have the right anointed leader, something would change. And when you think about that, that helps explain why all of the strange godlike qualities that were given to leaders through the years, and none were worse than the Roman emperors. It's not just that they were egomaniacs, the people wanted to assign something to them that was more godlike than human like. Why? Because if you thought of them as a man just like yourself, and you felt powerless to change the world around you, what hope would you have that 
they could change the world around you. And so it went on and on and on and empires were built. We pick up in Luke 2. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. What an amazing statement Luke makes. You know, if this were just a fable, if this were a fairy tale that you tell children, you would neatly leave out details exactly like that one that can be confirmed. You would leave out dates and times and places that were so specific they could be verified. But Luke makes no effort to do that. Instead, he does the opposite. And during what time was Jesus born? He was born during a time when a man's name had been changed from Octavian, means nothing of any account, to Augustus, the revered one, the bearer of light, it means. Caesar. He's the nephew of Julius Caesar. And when Julius Caesar had conquered most of the world, and by the way, Rome invested more and more and more and more power into Caesar, hoping that Caesar would bring a kind of salvation to the world. In the end, it didn't. And what did they do? That's right, they killed him. This is his nephew. And his nephew, because he was the nephew of Caesar, considered to be his successor, a son of Caesar, if you will, was heralded by poets as a god. And the reason he was heralded by poets as a god is it said that when Caesar died, a comet was seen in the heavens that meant Caesar was ascending into the heavens. There is a tendency in people to want to deify their leaders. They want to ascribe to them Camelot-like qualities. They might put their pictures on coins before they've done anything of account. You know Vespasian in 69 AD, like so many other rulers, I promise I'm coming back to Augustus, there had been Roman procurators that came in and out of Judea for many years. The most vicious of all of them was most certainly Pontius Pilate. The other procurators in the area had avoided putting their own images on coins because they didn't want to offend the Jewish population that had a dramatic, staunch, amazing belief that there were no gods save Yahweh. None. Period. No gods outside of Him. So they did not like graven images. I want you to understand how bold this statement is when you think about it. In a world full of polytheism, where everywhere you look, in Athens there's 400 gods, in Rome there's a god du jour of every kind... To stand up and make the statement, you shall have no gods besides me. This is not just an insinuation that your friends are in small error. It's a proclamation that they are actually in misdeed, error, sin. You are worshiping something that is not a god. The divine revelation that came forth from Sinai actually is an indictment on the entire world that what they were doing is wrong. Their building of empires, their lifting of men, all of those things would not bring salvation. Back to Vespasian. Vespasian in 69 brought his own standards into the temple of God. And his son Titus finished his work and destroyed it. They were trying to show that there is no God except the Caesars. God had the last word in that matter, and we'll get to that in a minute. In the days of Augustus Caesar, the poets were saying, 
Augustus is the son of God because he is the son of Caesar. They celebrated Augustus' birth. You want to know what month it was? December. With 12 days of Advent. The popular political slogan of Augustus' day in which Jesus was born said there is no name save Augustus by which men must be saved. It was painted on walls. It was painted on murals. It is actually on coins that have survived to this day. There's one other interesting note about Augustus. Uh, among the cult of imperial worship, he has the only one that has the reputation for having a priesthood that bought and sold indulgences. I'm sure all of those things are just coincidences. But the power that was centered at Rome offered a kind of salvation. They considered themselves a light to the world. This is the setting in which Jesus is born. Before we move any further in that, you need to understand all of the heroes that experienced tragedy, all of the empires that were built were built on some core principles. We have somebody that is unlike all of you common people. We have somebody that is above you. He's taller. He's more handsome. He's more athletic. He's gifted with wisdom from the gods. Something about him is superior to you. He is not ordinary. Secondly, more and more power needs to be invested in him. In fact, he needs to become a, a central point for all divestment of power. Trust him. Give him more. Your democracy? Well, we're going to become a dictatorship because we need what this guy has that nobody else has. Read about Julius Caesar. It's how he came into power. This is how empire was built. And the hope of the people was something will change. But the core problems in mankind were not changeable through the work of empire. Four Gentile kingdoms get their shot at this. We go from the Babylonians to the Medo-Persians to the Greeks. Right on down to the Romans, all promised better lives for people. All of them promised to do something for the world and for mankind. You know, it's funny when we read history and we look back on these things, we don't tend to see our, ourselves in those same lights. We see them as some other people in some other place with some other set of values. What mother has ever had a baby and did not want that baby to have a better life than she had? Do you really think that's different in the Persian Empire than it is in the American? That it's different in the Babylonian or the Roman or the Greek than it is here? Certainly it's not. They all had similar hopes, but nothing could be done about an innate, permeating feeling of guilt. Nothing could be done about it. And no lasting changes were ever brought to the world. This is the setting in which Jesus is born. There's already somebody that claims to be the Son of God. And many have come before Him and many would come after Him. There are already people being worshipped bringing universal peace. You think when we sing Christmas songs, peace and joy and all of those songs, we're the only people that have ever sung that about any king? It's been going on for millennia. What makes ours different? What makes him special? His empire, his kingdom operates in a totally different fashion. Instead of divesting all power in one person, although he's the center of it, he's turned around and poured it out on all mankind. Yes. Our king is different. 
but I don't want to get ahead of this. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to his own town to register. So Joseph also went up from that town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house in the line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for a baby to be born. And she gave birth to her firstborn, a son, she wrapped him in clothes and placed him in a manger because there was no room in the inn. Before we move any forward, the story of our God-man, our head of the empire, our king of the kingdom, begins differently than anyone else's at any time in history. Every other Monarch, emperor, Caesar, whatever you want to call these men, had glorified stories of their births. How they were issued from heaven themselves. How they were golden until touched by men. And every crazy thing that you can think of. They were born into palaces. They were born with the silver spoon literally in their mouths. Our king's story starts when the world had no room for him. And nobody thought he was anything special. Just mom and dad in a cave that the Bible calls a manger. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby. Did you know that shepherds were a class of society thought to be as low as slaves? Now, among Jews, they were prized for obvious reasons. The animals were sacred. But... The land of Goshen was seen as less than any other land in Egypt because that's where the herds were kept and they were lower than slaves. So of this no-account king born in a no-account place, the first people who are going to hear about it are the no-account people. Is this how you build an empire? Brings to mind the conversation Jesus has with his brothers in the book of John. If you're Roman Catholic this morning and you don't believe Jesus had brothers, I'm sorry. Take a black highlighter to the book of John and you can fix your doctrinal problem. They said nobody who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Come to the feast publicly. He said no. And then he went anyway without him. Everything about this king was done differently than the paradigm the world had laid down. But let me ask you something. What had the paradigm that the world laid down done for anyone? Xerxes could rule the world, but he couldn't save himself from being assassinated. The man who assassinated him quickly took the throne, but he couldn't do anything about the curse of guilt that five generations later brought plague upon his family line and wiped him out. No matter what they did, the same revolving story kept happening in history. Maybe it was time for a new approach. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were terrified. Why were they terrified? They are humble, ordinary, everyday men. If the king of the universe was going to appear, surely it would be to a great king. Surely it would be 
in a palace somewhere. But a new empire, a new kingdom was about to envelop the world that was not based upon one's social standing, that was not based upon heritage, that was not based upon military might. Isn't it interesting that even in the countries that we love, we're excited about the use of military might and we use scriptures to back them up? And yet this is not the way that the kingdom came into being. Let me tell you, I am a staunch supporter of Israel and America both. We'll take a little aside here for a minute because I'm going to come back to that. But there may be no bigger miracle than the survival of the modern state of Israel. I think, uh, as I put the bumper sticker on our church door, don't worry America, Israel is behind you. I think that their military is second to none in the world because they get the most experience with fighting with very bad people. And our equipment may be better, but they're more skilled at using it. I'm thankful for that. It gives America a purpose in the world besides being a purveyor of pornography or garbage or the other things that we're known for. But Israel was born out of the ashes of the Holocaust. When it was only one day old, 12 foreign nations declared war on Israel. 12. The Pentagon and the Kremlin in every major conflict, whether we're talking about the War of Liberation in 48, Six Days Wars in 67, Yom Kippur in 73, and so on and so forth, in every major engagement, both the Pentagon and the Kremlin, the head of the two largest superpowers in the world at the time, declared Israel's defeat to be inevitable. In 1973, they were so sure that it might be true the governments of the world started to talk to Israel about setting up a government in exile. Golda Meir actually had a plan for suicide. It's something not a lot of people know, but it's in her memoirs. And a president of the United States who many people thought was blatantly anti-Semitic did something that the world did not expect. In 73, during the Yom Kippur War, we had the largest airlift of military supplies in history. Richard Nixon sent the tanks, sent the aircraft, sent the things that the Jewish people needed to survive as a nation. Did you know that West Point studies wars from every civilization that it's recorded in history? At West Point, at the academy, they, they study military tactics, whether it's Xerxes or Julius Caesar, the American Civil War, you know what wars they do not study at West Point? They don't even enter into the discussion? The wars in Israel. Because their outcomes were so unforeseeable, it's not worth studying the tactics because they're considered to be miraculous. It's thought that nothing could be gained from it. You know, Hebrew is the only language that was dead for nearly 2,000 years as a spoken language among native peoples and it's back alive and thriving? That's never happened, that kind of resurrection. How about the aliyah of millions of Jews around the world to a single piece of land that would fit inside the state of Vermont eight times, and at the time they were making aliyah, 80% of Israel was a wasteland. Samuel Clemens said it was a place where prosperity had once reigned but obviously fallen. He saw a goat eating gravel, he said, because... There was nothing else for the goat to eat in all the land of Israel. In Israel today, 
is one of the world's largest, largest producers of fruit and flowers. It was 80% desert in 1947. And today, it produces the lion's share of Europe's fruit agriculture. When you think about Israel, you have to understand that whether we're talking about their king in the second chapter of Luke, or we're talking about the nation of Israel today, there is something miraculous in looking at the underdog, the little guy who is of no account to anyone and of no importance on the world scene, and yet God says there's something special about them. How many times has Israel been threatened to be wiped off the map? And they're still here. Well, Jesus was born into a very similar setting. Among the peoples of the world, he would be viewed much like the nations, the United Nations, view Israel. Of little account, a little town in northern Israel, not even the Jews thought anything good would come from that area. Nobody would think highly of him. And who does he reveal himself to first? Shepherds. Go back to Luke 2 if you've ever left. The glory of the Lord shines around them. Look at verse 10. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. Good news of great joy. I've often remarked about these words given to the angels. If you say that you have the good news, but you don't have great joy, something's wrong. Because the good news is supposed to produce great joy. That's what it's called, the good news of great joy. Too often Christians look like they are sucking on persimmons and proclaiming the good news. If anyone ever had the misfortune to see, or maybe fortune, depending on your perspective, to see the movie Amistad, the way that the slaves identified the Christians was not that they carried Bibles, that they all had the same look on their face. They called them the miserable ones. I don't want this to be said of us. In every way, we may look ordinary. In every way, we may be of little account. In every way, we may be opposite the paradigm of the world. And yet, the hope of the gospel is that all men, the whole world, can be brought to great joy through what is happening in our lives. There is a new empire, a new kingdom coming. It had been promised to Daniel that there would be four Gentile kingdoms followed by the kingdom of God. Now we're in the fourth Gentile kingdom and how does God intend to set up His kingdom? In a manger and with shepherds? You've got to be kidding me, right? Surely we have a shock and awe campaign. Surely we have something that will wow the nations. How about a giant golden throne and a weird looking pointed hat? <laughs> I was talking about Xerxes. I don't know who you thought I was talking about. Amazing. The lies never change. How about that? And this is not how God chose to do this. Keep your finger here. I want to interject something. And if you're feeling tortured by the time, you only have 28 more minutes. You'll be fine. Keep your finger here. Turn to Exodus. You'll be in the 26th chapter. See if we can start to put some of this together for you. But you need one more puzzle piece before we start to give you the whole picture. In Exodus 26, you are going to be in verse 31. Two of you are there. Where are the rest of you? I love you all. Make a curtain of blue 
Purple and scarlet yarn. It's amazing. The curtain has to do with heavenlies. Blue, purple, royalty, scarlet, redemption, yarn, and finely twisted linen. Linen was always something that was not wool. Linen was light. It was airy. It was not the product of a man's work and sweat. It simply was beautiful. With cherubim worked into it by a skilled craftsman. Cherubim always protected and were around the presence of God. So we have something being made that was heavenly. Something being made that was royal. Something being made that was not the work of any man. It was redemptive and had to do with the presence of God. Hang it with gold hooks on four posts of acacia wood, overlaid with gold and standing on four silver bases. I could teach for the rest of the year on those two sentences, but that would not be advisable. My wife says no. <laughs> Hang the curtain from the clasp and place the Ark of the Testimony behind the curtain. The curtain will separate the holy place from the most holy place. Put the atonement cover on the Ark of the Testimony in the most holy place goes on to talk about other furnishings. When the Jews set up something according to the design that God Himself had showed them, when Moses peered into the heavens and saw a building that he made a shadow and a copy of on the earth, what he saw, what he was told to make, was that God would dwell in a place called the most holy place. Men could come up to it, but they could not go in it. There was a curtain, a barrier, something with cherubim there that said this far and no further. Not all that unlike the Garden of Eden that had a cherubim outside it that said you cannot come in here. Except the Jews had a ritual where once a year a man could go in there. A special man. A man that wore the twelve tribes on his chest. A man whose appearance was somewhat heavenly because his outfit was designed from heaven. He was a man that had to deal specially with his own sin. The number of baths he had to take in a day is almost comical. They tied a goat thong to his foot when he went behind this curtain because he offered blood on what is called the mercy seat. This was a sign that there would be a day in which God would redeem His people. And in the meantime, here is temporary redemption brought by a special heavenly man. They tied something to his foot in case he was not as holy as they had hoped he was. That way when God struck him dead, they could drag him out. An amazing thing happened too when this animal was sacrificed. They did this with both the scapegoat and they did this with this offering. They took a scarlet cord and they put it in the blood of one of the animals. And then they hung it on the temple door. Go ahead and keep your finger here in Luke. You're going to turn to Isaiah. I mean, I know that you can all quote the book of Isaiah from memory. I was in a museum yesterday, and they said that among the Qumran community, the Essenes, they found more copies of Isaiah and Psalms than any other books. So they theorized from this that Jews apprised Isaiah and the Psalms more than any other book since there were more copies of it than any other. And then on a plaque on the other side of the wall, it's interesting that someone noted the two most quoted books in all of the New Testament, Psalms and Isaiah. It's amazing. What we find in common is more than what you find that distinguishes us. And yet the world would have you believe that there are many ways to the one true God. 
and Judaism is one, and Christianity is one, and it's hard for me to say it without choking on it, but Islam, they say, is one. And Buddhism's one, and Hinduism's one, and I mean, they're all paths to enlightenment, right? No, every paradigm for empire, every paradigm for savior, everything that there has ever been failed because it did not deal with man's guilt and his ultimate fate, except one. And it started like no other. It was propagated like no other, and it will end like no other. You know, the view that Greeks had of history was very circular. We're doomed to repeat the same thing over and over. And their view of the cosmos was not much more complex. It's uh, on a tortoise shell. I mean, make you wonder. They say crack was invented in our time. <laughs> when divine revelation enters the scene, though, we have something else. We have a very linear view of history. We have something that says, yes, we understand where you are now. Death is reigning on mankind. But at a point in time, a fixed point in time called the fullness of time, the divine will do something about it. If you were going to announce such a point in time, it probably would not have been in a manger with shepherds. If you think mankind did not have this joint hope, what were men doing called magi? traveling from the east after looking at stars. All mankind knew what it was resigned to and all wanted something to be done about it. Are you in Isaiah? Yes. In Isaiah, check out this verse. Come now. This is, uh, let's read from 17. Learn to do right, 117. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Encourage the oppressed. Defend the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. That sounds just like the book of James, doesn't it? Yeah. Also sounds like Psalm 82. It also sounds like Jesus spoke. Amazing thing. Come now, let us reason together, says Yahweh. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you will eat the best of the land. Y'all ever find God redundant? I mean, have you ever been reading and you thought so and so begat so and so begat so and so? And yes, I get it. There's a sacrifice for this, that, the other, and every other thing. Have you ever read and just thought you're kidding me? I mean, on and on and on and on and on and on. He's a very specific God, and he is not being redundant when he says your sins are like scarlet, and then later he calls them like crimson. These words signify something. One is the color, scarlet. The other is the substance used to make things, scarlet. It's called a tola worm. What the ancient peoples did was they found this particular worm, and they ground it up. And when you ground up this worm, yeah, isn't that nice, appetizing? And when you ground this worm up, the tola worm produced a tola ink. And it's one thing to have something that is just scarlet. But if it has the tola ink on it, it is an indelible stain. It's not just the stain red. It is something that will stain everything it touches red. God is saying not just if you have sinned, but if you are the kind of person that causes everything around you, everything you touch, to become stained with sin, I can make you white. I can make you clean. What a promise this was. You would want to know when something like this was going to happen, wouldn't you? Yes. 
So they did something. They took this scarlet cord that they dipped in the blood of a sacrificed animal on the Day of Atonement and they hung it to the temple door. And the Talmud, which is a sort of commentary on the written and oral law, has a section of it called Yoma. I don't know what Yoma means. I'm still working on my Hebrew. But Yoma is a chapter section of the Talmud. And in this chapter section, around the 39th verse, they begin to describe something. They said throughout Israel's history, from the time of Solomon's temple forward, when they hung the red cord on the door of the temple, within a few days, the indelible stain of the Tola worm went away and it turned white as snow in fulfillment of the words of Isaiah. And it was like a sign to all of the people that said, I know that you are permeated with guilt. I know that sin reigns over you like a master. But there is a monarch with an unseen empire that can do something about it. It goes on to say, in the second half of the 39th verse of Yoma 39b, that this stopped at a fixed point in time. Now this is not uh, a messianic Christian writing. This is not a Greek believer in Jesus writing. This is the writings of a man who stayed within Judaism all of his life and did not accept Yeshua as Messiah and he says in the second half of that verse that it was about 40 years before the temple was destroyed, the cord no longer turned white. Now my math's not very good, but if the temple was destroyed somewhere right around 70 AD, and 40 years before that the cord stopped turning white, what year would that be? Around 30 AD. Imagine that. What year did Jesus' ministry start? Do you think maybe, maybe in an obscure way that when the king of kings is born into a manger and announced to shepherds when he travels about teaching some of the things I will share with you soon it would have been something that the average observer could have missed as significant but to a special people group who had been warned by the living God to look for certain things it was evident and they wrote about it and their writings are contained in your New Testament they saw something. I want you to notice the kind of things that they wrote upon which this empire is built. Because for all of your study of Christianity, for all of your learning of the Bible, you've been told what to believe. But you've never really been taught how to live. Mm -hmm. Now some of you in here may have, and please don't take exception, I'm speaking in general terms. Anybody could have learned a creed of Augustus. Anybody could have learned what pleases Xerxes. But to learn to walk in the footsteps of the Messiah, Yeshua, the one from Galilee, this takes a lifetime of constant practice. Turn back to Luke. Turn with me to Luke 6. Imagine that you are king of an empire. Imagine that you want the whole world to know that you and you alone can bring about change so that they'll do things like pay taxes to you. So that they'll do things like be conscripted in your armies. So they will do things like put up with the confiscation of their property so that you can build roads in your name. So that they'll do things like give up their liberties so that you and you alone can protect their freedoms. 
These are the workings of empire. This is what empire does. We call Jesus Lord of Lord, and look how his teaching can be contrasted with that of empire. In Luke 6, start in the 33rd verse. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners, expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies. Can you picture those words coming out of Xerxes' mouth? How about Augustus' mouth? How about Mithras incarnate? Caesar Chlorus? How about Nero? Diocletian? Domitian? Antiochus Epiphanes? Can you think of any of the world leaders that would have said something like that? But love your enemies, do good to them? How do you fight a war doing good to someone? How on earth do you protect the borders of your kingdom doing good to someone? How do you divest all power in one person if you only do good to people? Isn't power based on brutality? Isn't power based on my ability to take what you have? This is what the paradigm of the world says. And now we have a king who's going in the complete opposite direction. He's saying, no, don't take what they have. Give them what you have. No, don't do harm to them. Do good to them. Lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great and you will be called sons of the Most High because He is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. How many of you find mercy just flows from you naturally? Yeah, let's put that to the test. We're going to have Stephen stand up and slap you on both sides of your face as you come in and as you leave. Right? And when you respond, thank you, sir, may I have another? Like the frat boys in Animal House, a movie my sister once watched. <laughs> then we will know that you are merciful. We will call you Cody the Merciful. This is not a normal thing. In fact, this goes against everything we've ever learned, doesn't it? All of Jesus' teachings did. On the night that he's supposed to have his coronation, we find in John 13, look at there. I'm going to share one more with you and then I promise we will jump into the point before I run out of time. There. Luke 13, starting in the 12th verse. When he had finished washing their feet. Well, I'm sure that's something Xerxes would have done. That's something that Julius Caesar would have done. Washed someone's feet. I was having a discussion yesterday with a fairly enlightened group of people. <clears throat> And we were extolling the virtues of beauty with which God had blessed us in the form of our spouses. But of all of the parts of our spouses' bodies that we admired, feet was not highest on the list. Of all the parts that you could touch in first century Palestine, Feet had to be the dirtiest. Mm -hmm. Now I know some of you are thinking, I got you, Pastor. There are other dirtier parts. Mm -mm. <laughs> no, I promise there's not because your feet carried you in and out of the latrines. Your feet carried you everywhere you went and Nike did not make high tops yet. And there were no surgical uh, covers. Jesus got down and washed 12 stinky guys, one of whom was a devil's feet to teach them something. This was really the last teaching opportunity 
before he would be upon the cross. And he washed people's feet. Look at what he does. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes. So he, he took off his garments to do this. That's lowering yourself even further. And returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord. That word Lord is the Hebrew word Adonai. It means owner and controller. And rightly so, for that is what I am. <laughs> That's an interesting phrase to translate in Hebrew. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should also wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. I tell you the truth, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you believe them. Do them. The church can quote very well the events of Jesus' life. But how well do we mimic the events of Jesus' life? The book of 1 John does not say, if you love Him, you will believe as He believed. It says, if you love Him, you will walk as He walked. Do you find yourself ever in a position where maybe you have obtained a promotion? <laughs> and there's hell to pay for those that were rude to you? when you were simply peers. Maybe somebody who you used to try to sell things to and they treated you badly now is in a position to have to buy from you. Jack up the price. Yeah, we've got a vendor and supplier and situation going on in the church. The reason I'm asking you these things is are these not the paradigms of empire? I will gather power. I will bring about change to the world through my own right arm. And inwardly, doesn't that say that you think you're better than other people when we do that? Jesus' kingdom is based on exactly the opposite. Turn with me to Philippians 2. Golly, Pastor, you turn to a lot of pages in the Bible. I wouldn't have to turn if you had them memorized. Interesting that... As I stood and looked at a copy of the scroll of Isaiah that dated to a hundred years before Jesus, it was unchanged from the copy that I have in my Bible. Where are all those skeptics that thrived in the 30s and the 40s that said there were textual errors in the Bible and that it had been handed down from generation to generation and was no longer trustworthy? Where are they now? Well, one little boy who threw a rock at a jar in the Qumran Valley has silenced them because we now have copies of scriptures that are 2100 years old that were the same in Jesus' day as they are today. And the arguments are gone. Aren't the scholars always so wise till something like Israel is born again in a single day happens? Aren't they so wise until a wall that is said to never be able to be torn down actually comes down? They're always wise in their own eyes until God laughs in their face through the annals of history. You may be yet condemned to repeat some errors in history even though you know them. But we have a hope the Greeks never had. We have a hope that is based on God's promises to one nation on the planet, Israel. And the mystery is that we together with them can experience the renewal of all things. Are you in Philippians? Yes. yes. 
starting with the fourth verse of the second chapter. Each of you should look not only to your own interest, but also to the interest of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Does that sound awkward to say? Your attitude should be that, the same as that of Callahan Casey. When I was a little boy, the man that called himself my father sometimes would use Jesus' name like a first name, Christ like a last name, and a big H in the center. I never knew what H stood for, and I was scared to ask. Christ is a title. It's a title, and it means the anointed one. And anointed means the divinely enabled. The divinely enabled one. Not two, not three, not five. One. Out of all the course of human history, one human being has been different than all others. He's been divinely enabled to do something. Now listen to this. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. This one person, this God-man, had a certain attitude, a demeanor. I don't know whether you could put him on that test where you get a A-type personality, a D-type personality. I think I get an F, a failure personality. But we are supposed to imitate him. And then how does he describe this man's personality? Who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, held on to, cling to. The man was God. He's as high as they go. But he didn't need to be presented on a throne as God. He's as high as they go, but he did not need everybody around him to put his pictures on coins. He did not need the media of the day to extol his virtues. He didn't consider it worth clinging to. But made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. In other words, not only did he not cling to a royal position, he also identified with common, everyday, ordinary people. That's a little different than Xerxes. It's a little different than Augustus. It's a little different than Julius Caesar. It's a little different than any world leader you can name. Even in the religious communities, they practice something. It's a practice of the Nicolaitans. It's a separation between leadership and those who are following because everybody knows that if you get too close to the leader, you'll see that they're a man or woman just like you. And you can't respect them. So they keep a safe distance. They stand aloof so that you can ascribe to them qualities that are not really there and esteem them in godlike status. I'm sure this practice died out with the Roman Empire. You don't see it on TV. You don't see it among... I mean, wouldn't you be impressed if I had the right kind of suit right now? the right haircut, the right car? What if my life looked like something that you could make a short infomercial about <laughs> called Would You Like to Be Rich? Mm. Tell me pastors are not doing that. Mm. I would vomit, but that would lose your interest, wouldn't it? <laughs> 
And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. You're going to want to keep your finger here in Philippians. Death on a cross. Now, mind you, death on a cross is the lowest of deaths that you can die. If you happen to be just a citizen of Rome, not anybody in particularly important, but just a citizen, you were given a cleaner death. Death by decapitation. At least it was quick. If you were a soldier of Rome, you were given a soldier's death. You were impaled with a sword quickly, right at the base of the spine, so that you felt nothing, at least after entry. But if you're a criminal, if you are not a citizen of Rome, if you are not royalty of Rome, if you're of no particular import, then we can kill you in the most agonizing, shameful, humiliating way possible. We can hang your body out there so that you literally asphyxiate. You can get air in your lungs and cannot blow it out. And the only relief that we could give you is we'll break your legs so that you don't even try to breathe. You just go ahead and give up. The God of the universe humbled himself in that way. And the writers of the gospel say, our attitude should be the same. So how's your week shaping up so far? I know. You were at Luby's and somebody cut in line. And with the horror of that injustice, you were forced to build empire, to do something about it. Because you have the right! Huh? We need to be careful that the paradigm of the ages does not result in the same fate for us that it has with everyone else. God's kingdom is built a completely different way. Keep your finger in Philippians. And you know what? you got two more scriptures. Does that make you happy? Yeah. Some of them are very long, like a book. Yeah. But, you know. Go to Matthew 27. Even death on a cross. Doesn't that seem like the God-man stepped a long ways down? I mean, would you expect the President of the United States to come to your house? If he did come to your house, I mean, little old no account, your house, would you expect him to do the dishes? Would you let him do the dishes? And then if he came to your house and he did the dishes, would you let him wash your feet? I mean, he's the President of the United States. Who are you that he should wash your feet? And then, would you let him take out the baby's diapers? And then, would you let him pay your speeding ticket? Take your jail sentence? Be convicted of murder for you? Not sitting 20 years plus on death row? but killed in an excruciating way? Wouldn't there be something he said, he doesn't deserve this. He's somebody great. This, this belonged to me. All of the leaders that ever sought to change the world before Jesus did it by being great. They failed. Jesus has changed the world by becoming the least. This does something in God's eyes. But before we get there, I need you to be in Matthew 27. Don't have time to teach on the crucifixion. My hour is up. And uh, I'm going to keep preaching anyway. But we're going to cut it short. Starting in the 50th verse. 
And when Yeshua had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. This is at the end of a long and excruciating day. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rocks split. You can turn back to Philippians. At a moment in time where a man that was equal with God in every way, in nature, in substance, in quality, had humbled himself to the point where he was ordinary like you. He didn't build an empire by elevation. He built an empire by serving the least. At the moment that that man submitted to God in the most humiliating way possible, death on a cross. Something happened that had never happened in all human history. There had always been a barrier between you and God. There had always been some line somewhere that said, this far, but no further. There had always been something there that was your guilt that kept you from coming into the presence of God. This curtain is over 60 feet high. Some people say it was four and a half feet thick. Others don't. Doesn't matter, does it? How many of you are tall enough to rip a 60 foot tall curtain? Okay. Not even Shaq can do that, right? Or if you prefer Wilt Chamberlain, right? Any of the heroes that uh, we lift up for their great moral virtues. God ripped it from top to bottom to show it was the work of God and not of any man. It seems that when we lower ourselves, God reaches down to meet us. It seems that when the cross goes up, the cross of sacrifice, the barriers between you and God come down. It seems that the answer that man was looking for, he could never get because he always elevated himself. And the secret of the Gospel is the further you lower yourself, the closer God comes to you. Mm. Corey Tim Boom said the moment she felt closest to God in her life was when the Nazi death camp soldier that had brutalized her sister before killing her appeared in a church and said, Fraulein, I know that God forgives me, but I need to know that you forgive me. How many of you want to do that? How many of you want to be in that position? She said in that moment in her mind, she could see her sister's frail emaciated naked form before her in line. And this German soldier jeering at her, poking at her like she was cattle with a stick. And she thought in her mind, no, no, I won't forgive you. But out of the depths of her soul, like dancing, came the words, I forgive you. And she said she felt closer to God at that moment than at any time in her previous 80 some odd years. The mystery of the gospel is that when you lower yourself, the curtain comes down. God opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. Are you back in Philippians? Yes. Lowered Himself to death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted Him to the highest place and gave Him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
Everything he did not fight to have was given to him. What is it that we feel the need to fight to have? And are you excluding yourself from the glory of God because you cannot let it go? I almost did not move to Texas because I was concerned about my reputation. A brother that I love had been fasting for me. I asked him to pray. He prayed and fasted. You've got to love those kind of brothers. I said, why are you worried about your reputation? Jesus never sinned. And they called him a drunkard and demon-possessed. Do what God told you to do. I came so close to missing it. And by the grace of God, I did what He told me to do. You know what I would have missed out on if I didn't? Every one of you. What is it that we hold on to as dear and as important? What is it that's part of our empire and not part of God's? Because the further you go into letting it go, the more He can ultimately put in your hands. The further you humble yourself, the higher He will lift you. This is the mystery of God's kingdom. It was never so beautifully illustrated in all of history as a king born in a manger who now we number the days of his birth every time you write a check. Not because he said he was great, but because his actions proved it. What makes a great man in your eyes? His words or his deeds? Our last scripture is to be found in the letter to the Messianic community that we call Hebrews. From where you are, you can turn right in your Bible. By the way, when the curtain tore, there was an earthquake. The earthquake was reported by secular historians. Phlegon, Julius Africanus, and Eusebius all wrote about it. If you've ever heard that the Bible does not have outside sources that attest to its events, all you need to do is read. There's a museum right now in Houston that you can go read the works of Flavius Josephus. And most Christian bookstores, you can buy it for just a couple dollars because nobody but you will care to read it. Isn't that sad? They would rather read a book about how to get rich. But throughout these men's works, all of the major events of the Gospels are completely verified from people that were not even believers. It's not blind faith, friends. He's given you every reason to trust Him. The only thing that's blind is our indifference to it. Are you in Hebrews 10? We're going to start in the 19th verse. It's the last one that I will read you. Can you imagine that for 1,600 years you had gone to the temple gate? That's really not quite true. It was not that long. But for hundreds of years you had gone to the temple gate and you had looked to see if the cord turned white again. And when you saw it turn white, you could dance in liberty and you'd go, Woo! That means that I'm free from that burden of guilt. Till tomorrow, when I do it again. My people, though, are free from our collective burden of guilt until next year. Some measure of relief in it. But it certainly wasn't permanent. Then how did you feel the first year you went out and the cord no longer turned white. It was still red. Then how did you feel? 
there is no hope. There is no salvation. There is nothing. God, did you lie to me? God, are you going to let me down? Or are you doing something my eyes have scarcely perceived? Isn't it amazing that the year Jesus started his earthly ministry, the cord stopped turning white because he was providing something for the whole nation to turn to. If they would just be given eyes that would see and ears that would hear. Hebrews writes about them. 19th verse. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus. It's not the blood of bulls and goats. It's not a high priest. It's not the holy place here on earth. It's the heavenly curtain that was torn. The barrier that was between you and God. It has been eradicated. By a new and living way, open for us through the curtain that is His body. The miracle of the gospel. The unseethy truth in the gospel is that the way that it has to be opened between you and God can only come through the tearing and denial of your flesh. This is what Jesus has taught us. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and full assurance of trust. Having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience. And having our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for He who promised is trustworthy, faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another all the more as you see the day approaching. Friends, we have a hope that is no longer condemnation to perpetual repeating of man's fate, of death and guilt. We have something that none of the other empires ever had. We now have a linear view of history that says at a point in time you became aware of your guilt, of your sin. At another point in time, you became aware of the only name under heaven by which God has given men that we can be made whole from our guilt. And now there remains a third point on your line that you're waiting for. It's called the approaching day. When He comes to restore the entire world even as He's restored you to claim His people as His own. This is so much different than a Greek tragedy where you empathize and experience emotional healing through the plight of others. We have a hope the world can scarcely understand because our empire is built on a completely different paradigm than they ever imagined. What are your actions display? Which empire would they see that you live in? It is so important that we don't just believe what he says. We do what he did. Y'all stand to your feet and we'll pray. I couldn't tell you how happy I am that I made it through the whole message without having to run to the restroom. There you go. That would have embarrassed you guys, wouldn't it? Thanks for sharing. Our God cares about the smallest details in our lives. And the humble prayer of our worship team that said, Dear God, please let us make it through this service. He answered. 
I don't just say those things so that we bring levity to the room. I want you to understand the gospel is not advanced by people that are held up as separate from you so that you can idolize their lives in some unholy fashion. Never brought salvation anywhere. The gospel's advanced when people stand shoulder to shoulder with each other. You share in each other's lives, the good, the bad, and the ugly, and can see God's hand at work. This is what's wrong with movie star Christianity. Join the hands of the people around you. Act like we're one. Mighty, mighty God, we thank you. We thank you for the chance to be your servants. Lord, some of the things that you gave me to say today may seem harsh. Others, Lord God, offer hope. I pray that this congregation would chew up the meat, that they would spit out the bones, that they would make application as your Ruach HaKodesh leads them to. Lord, some need to be lifted up high for they think of themselves too lowly. Others need to be squashed for they think of themselves too highly. Lord God, whatever view we need to take of ourselves, we pray that the leading of Your Spirit would bring us to that place and that we would glorify You in our actions. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.